I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Hello, hello. I have a dog on my lap, and uh, it's because she can look outside. So That's so exciting! She starts I to have... see squirrels. I'll put I'll put her down. <laughs> I have no dog, but I have some bread waiting for me. So on our break between people, I'm gonna have to run off and like get my bread ready to go. Cool. What time? When, when's your timer gonna go off? I can time my story so that you're not I said... overproving. I set no timer, but I need to do a stretch and fold on the half hour, and I did one right before we started recording. So if we can do like a tight okay. 30, that would be ideal for my bread. A tight 30. Okay. All right. Challenge accepted in the pursuit of good bread. Um, so you're listening to this in the future probably, but it was just Veterans Day, and I was thinking about veterans, and I was thinking about lady veterans, and so I went all the way back in terms of America, to the Revolutionary War. And I have two ladies to talk about because there's not a lot about them because sources are hard to come by at that point. Um, But yeah, we'll just get into it. So, Revolutionary War, are you familiar, Michael? I have a passing familiarity, but the last... Didn't you once tell me that the Enlightenment was like your least favorite period of history? Uh, I don't want to say I have favorites, but... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And why is that? Um, there's just this whole world of Enlightenment rhetoric that I find, like, deeply, deeply problematic. And it's also, in a fun, fun way, the root of most modern isms, like racism, sexism, all of those, like, delightful biases aren't, like, age-old things. Most of them actually can be traced back pretty clearly to the Enlightenment itself. And, like, don't want to give my thing away, but, like, my lady this week is also an Enlightenment lady. So I'm super excited to see how this goes. That's so great. Okay, well, maybe you can expand more on the era. But I'll talk to you specifically about the Revolutionary War a little bit. Um, Hit me up. I'm sort of super bored by battle stories, so I won't talk too much about, like, and the infantry was advancing on the hill and blah. I I, I don't find those very exciting. So maybe I... Didn't do as much research as I could have. But, you know, we'll make it entertaining. We'll do our best. Um, Frankie's here with me, so she's my little support. Uh, let's see here. Um, French and Indian War happened immediately preceding, which is where a lot of this conflict comes about between the British and the colonies, because uh, Fran- France technically loses. We gain Canada and all of the French territory. But with that kind of skirmish, that's what caused England to go into debt in such a way that they had to tax the colonies, right? Mm-hmm. And then that's where all of the kind of conflict broods because we didn't, uh, we, the American colonies didn't have representation in the parliament in terms of like people who were passing this legislation were underrepresented, if not at all. So there was a lot of hostility with taxes without representation, the tried and true like Stamp Act and Sugar Act, Tea Act, uh, Boston Tea Party's in 73, 
the first Continental Congresses in 74. You see, like, every year, like, there's a big boom, big boom, big boom. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the Tea Party, it gets hostile, right? That's sort of, like, the first skirmish. The first think... kind of act of violence. I mean, besides Boston Massacre, but one of these, like, acts of violence, it really focuses the attention on Boston. And at that point, um, Massachusetts comes under direct rule of Britain, whereas before they were like, there were governors and there were appointees by the crown to kind of oversee. But that was the first time that like English soldiers were coming to observe and and um, become in charge of these colonies. So then there's like a weird thing because they are technically English, right? They observe themselves mm-hmm. as English, even though they're made up of a lot of immigrants they they there's plenty of people that consider themselves british so but they also feel like an occupied territory um when you have soldiers walking around that's why a lot of the first laws are about unlawful uh lodging of soldiers in your home like you can't just force people force soldiers upon citizens in a way um anyway and the start of militias has been you know tried and true with the start of the colonies there's an expectation that there's a militia there but when the crown is involved it's kind of a scene as a um kind of necessary to fight against like native american forces and and french at the time who were considered hostile so it was a way of like supplying soldiers until the british army could actually get there do you know what i mean this Mm -hmm. has a bad effect though because now your citizens are armed so when you have hostility between the governing body and your citizens, issues ensue. So as the British kind of take over Massachusetts, the militias and the states kind of get amped up. It's that sort of posturing thing that happens with every conflict where it's like, okay, well, I'm just, I'm just going to get my gun to defend myself. And then the other side's like, whoa, why are you getting a gun? What's going on? It's like, well, I'm scared. Well, I'm, well, I'm scared because you got a gun. Why? You got a gun. Oh, no. Oh, no. What's happening? Um. So the British start to, the British troops, I'm going to try and say colonists and British so we're clear. Okay. British troops start moving through the countryside and finding these kind of storerooms where the militia held all their, not only guns and ammunition, but also like food supplies and um, beverages like rum and coffee because no one could drink the water. So you had to drink these kind of other things in order to stay strong when on the battlefield. And um, we all know about Lexington and Concord, right? The, sh- the shot heard yeah. around the world and the um, yeah, there you go. Schoolhouse Rock you song go. that yeah. accompanies it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, accurate. So um, Concord and Lexington happens in 75. And that's definitely like the start of the conflict, if you will. Um, the rebels, the rebels, the colonists are outnumbered. I mean, Sorry. rebels, it's not You can tell which source term. I read this from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The British keep really good records of stuff. So they're outnumbered by the British, but uh, so they start in Lexington. They're outnumbered. They fall back to Concord and the British like follow them. And as they're following them, you know, Paul Revere is like mustering the troops to come. And so the militias kind of surround the British and are just shooting at them as they're trying to march. So there's a lot of on the way fighting is instead of just like at the two sites. And, um, the British get to a certain point, militias have assembled and are firing on them. So they're like, oh, crap, this isn't worth it. We're going back to Boston and they retreat. So it's sort of like this nice booing moment for these like 
farmers who are now soldiers and all this nonsense. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. How did this happen? So William Howe is put in charge of the British and Washington is appointed in charge of a brand new continental army. So now we officially have an army without a country, but we've got an army, um, supplemented by local militias that have organized over time. Uh, 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 we lose at Bunker Hill. It's starting to become less, uh, don't stiff the mic, Frank. Sorry. <laughs> we have an involved producer. Hold on. Um, Declaration of Independence, 1776. Okay. Those are all the basics of the revolution. We all know how it goes. It goes great. Um, so in 75, Paul Revere, you know, he's alarming about the troops on their way to Lexington. He is alarming. Um, indeed. he... He's yeah, he's actually one of three messengers that were called out to send uh, word to the militias to muster and to get um, involved in order to get those British to retreat back to Boston, right? But of those three guys, it was Dawes, Prescott, and Revere. Prescott was able to get to Concord. Revere was captured, which I did not know. And Dawes was actually thrown from his horse as he was trying to leave, and he had to actually walk back to Lexington. So... <laughs> They maybe didn't do hot. I mean, and overall, the colonists did great, but those three guys kind of had some issues that night. Um, so now we're going to talk about this girl named Sybil Ludding- Ludington. Ludington is her name. Sybil. We're going to call her Sybil. Um, she's born in 1761 to Henry and Abigail Ludington, and she's the eldest of 12 children, to which can oh we all just raise our glass to Abigail Ludington, who had to have 12 babies in the 1700s. In rural New York. Goodness. Okay, I'm going to have a sip on that one. Twelve kids. Twelve. 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 And they didn't know about germs. Twelve. <laughs> what a nightmare. Um, they're in New York. They're on a bunch of acres of land. Her dad is kind of a big deal in the New York Assembly, which was like the local government at the time. He uh, He's also in charge of the local militia. So the way it would work is... Um, they would be banded together for certain issues and then they would all go off home to their own farmlands. And then if an issue came up, they'd all have to muster again and like go to where help was needed. Kind of like I equate it to National Guard, but maybe that's just my ignorance of understanding how it would That I mean, that seems like a, a fairly good comparison. I mean, they didn't just comparison. do... Yeah, there's, some, there's an element of like help as well as fighting. Um, let's see. So the British have this guy named William Tryon who is bringing troops to New York and they're going to go up to Danbury, Connecticut, which is close by because they have found out that there's a bunch of supplies there for the Continental Army and they're going to raid it. So um, 1777, they go up there. It's April. They're uh, going around Danbury and they're like, you British? Okay. You like the king? Cool. What about you? Good. Okay. We're going to mark all your homes with some chalk. And we're going to just say, you, you go on your merry way. But your neighbor over here said he didn't like King George. So we're going to burn down his farm, steal all his stuff, and just, like, torch it. Um, not sure how many citizens were killed, but it probably wasn't great as you watch your entire neighborhood just go up in flames. Probably not. Except for, like, the... And then, and then it, like, clearly distinguishes, like, oh, Jim is a loyalist and we are not. And then there's like clear divisions of like, who's a jet and who's a shark. You know what I mean? (laughs) Not really helping, not really helping anybody except the British in that way. The British soldiers, I should say. Um, 
So uh, Danbury is going up in flames. Everyone's freaking out. They know that uh, there's a bunch of food being stored there, like a ton of supplies, you know, grain and, and, and meat and, and rum and coffee and stuff. And the soldiers are like, oh, sweet rum. So they like drink it because you're torching a neighborhood. So why not have a little Bev? Right. Have a little party. Um, maybe in that moment, more fires started that were a little less regulated. So now oh, no. the Americans are real pissed and they're like, oh, let's get this over with. So they organize messengers. The messengers ride off in all directions trying to find assistance for Danbury to like not have all these people die and like their homes destroyed and such. So Sybil's dad is in charge of the militia at the time, as I said. Uh, she's close to Danbury, even though they're in New York. It's that kind of Connecticut border mm-hmm. um, area. And a messenger arrives to his farm to because he's the one in charge of the militia. He's like, Danbury's on fire. You got to get everybody involved. He's in charge of 400 men at the time, Henry, her dad. Um, and the messenger that had come wasn't familiar with the area. It's night. Uh, Henry's got to get his stuff in order. So he looks at Sybil. I'm making this story up at this point. This is not... I'm putting a little narrative flair on it. So he looks at Sybil. He's like, hey, you're just 16 two weeks ago and you know how to ride a horse. You're up, my girl. And she's like, cool, I'm the oldest. Let's do this. And she gets her horse, whose name is Star, which is like the most 16-year-old girl's horse name I've ever heard. Um, I'm going to call it Star. We're going to braid its mane. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sure she was great. And she gets on Star and begins to uh, travel around to all her neighbors because she knows the area the best. The messenger that had come didn't know New York like he knew Connecticut. So she's like, I know where everybody is. I'm going to go. So it's dark. It's raining. And she takes Star and a stick and travels all around the like 40 mile region near her farm um, all night in the rain. And apparently there's a bunch of stories about like her, like at the time you see a girl or a small figure, I would assume on a horse, you'd be like, Ooh, I could steal that horse if you're a ruffian up to no good. Cause it's just one person. So you go up and you try and like slow the horse down and get the person off of it. And then you got a horse and you're a horse thief and it was a big deal. So there are stories of like her having to fend off a person or two with her stick. With her she stick. just like beat the crap out of them and then kept going around and like, raising the alarm for all of the um, militia. And she returns home safely in the morning from riding all night. She's exhausted. But nearly all of the 400 men were assembled by the morning to her farm, to her dad's farm, and were able to move forward and try and provide uh, assistance to the Danbury community. Due to it being 1770-something, by the time they got there, a lot of the like major issues had died down. But... They then went to another area and then another area, and they did eventually participate in some conflict. But the kind of bell of the ball at the time was Sybil and the fact that she rode uh, 40 miles in a night at 16 in the rain and beat a highwayman. Um, So at the time, George Washington knew about her and congratulated her, but there wasn't a lot known in the area except like her family. And um, she gets married. She has a son. Uh, she has, I believe, grandchildren. And then her great nephew became a Connecticut historian. 
And her story had like traveled through the family at the time. So he put it into words and I'm going to read a little bit of what he read, which is one who even now rides from Carmel to Cold Spring would find, oops, sorry, will find rugged and dangerous roads with lonely stretches. Imagination can only, oh God, read Katie. Imagination only can picture what it was a century and a quarter ago on a dark night with reckless bands of cowboys and skinners. That's a term for like no good dudes on the road. But the child performed her task, clinging to a man's saddle and guiding her steed with only a hempen halter. Don't know what that means. I think it was pretty lame. Uh, bridle. As she rode through the night, bearing the news of the sack of Danbury. There is no extravagance, extravagance in comparing her ride with that of Paul Revere and its midnight message, nor was her errand less efficient than his. By daybreak, thanks to her daring, nearly the whole regiment was mustered before her father's house at Fredericksburg, and an hour or two later was on the march for vengeance on the raiders. And that's in 1907. So it's not that far removed. I mean, it's crazy in a historian's mind how close things are generation to generation. Like, she's around 77. This is her great nephew who, right? I mean, it's just crazy to me. And, um, yeah, she, uh, after the mustering or her moment claim to fame, she marries a man named Edmund Ogden and they had a child named Henry who became a lawyer. She lives in New York the rest of her life. Pretty un remarkable stories. She runs a tavern, you know, nice. she's a, she's the lady of her time and she lives to 77 and passes away in New York. Um, the reason we know about Paul Revere is cause Longfellow, what's his full name? Henry something. What? I don't know. He's got three names. Longfellow is a famous poet in the 1800s. Uh, he writes a poem at the beginning of the civil war. Uh, which we all know today as listen my children and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April 75 hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year so we all know that poem in some capacity we're like oh Paul Revere one if by land two if by sea which is nonsense it was made up in the poem um (laughs) I didn't know that I just want to say that Paul Revere was captured after 20 miles and my dear friend Sybil ran 40 and and was back home in the morning safe and sound and took a nap. So maybe we should utilize women more. I don't know. Just thinking. Um, Just a thought. So since that happened, uh, she received more acclaim as time went on. And there are books written about her. There was a postage stamp about her. Uh, Around the Bicentennial, there was a big finding of a lot of women revolutionaries in honor of the Bicentennial. So... The DAR got involved, the Daughters of the American Revolution, and they uh, erected a statue of her, like, on a horse in Carmel, New York, which was along the route she traveled. And there's, like, little signposts that say, like, this was her path. And you can, um, I think there's, like, a marathon where you could run the track that she had to travel at the night. So there's a lot of stuff that now celebrates her in a really great way. Mm-hmm. And Frankie, I need you to, like, stop stealing focus, because we need to give Sybil her due, okay? Um, sorry. Yeah, so I thought that was really cool. So, yeah, Paul Revere did 20 miles, I'm just saying Sybil did 40, no big deal. And uh, she didn't get captured by anybody, so. <laughs> yeah. And now I have my other lady. Okay. What time are we at? We just got our, we just got our 20 minutes. Oh, crap. Okay, great. This one will be great. So then the next one is Margaret Corbin. So 
she's born Margaret Cochran to Irish immigrants in Western Pennsylvania because I don't know if everybody knows this, but our, our country was founded by immigrants. Um, they're kind of a big deal. And uh, it's the height of the conflict with um, Native Americans at the time. So her family home is raided by Native Americans when she's like five years old and they think her parents were like killed or like taken and sold to French people in Canada, which apparently happened at the time, which I find crazy. Stop. Sorry, that's to Frankie. Uh, and also to... So she's... Yeah. Selling people into no, slavery and fighting. Yeah, we're Native pretty Americans. big fans of selling people at the time, but I didn't realize like that was a product of, you know, Irish people at the time were apparently sold just like anybody else, which I guess that's how indentured servants happened, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element. This of gets that. into the like whole conservative thing of like, well, the Irish were slaves too, and it's like totally different, but like was part of like a different war structure, like all like a whole. We could do whole episodes about like that, but I don't think that's something we want to touch right now. Fair, fair. Anyway, uh, she's an orphan at five with her brother. She's sent to live with relatives. She gets to, like, early 20s. She marries John Corbin, who's, like, a local farmer. Uh, 72, it's obviously, like, things are percolating and getting a little heated. So her husband, John, enlists in the Pennsylvania, uh, first company, Pennsylvania Artillery. And this brings up an interesting thing about revolutionary soldiers, which is that um, due to the fact that there weren't that many, because there's not a lot of Americans, uh, women would go to the battlefield with them all the time. Uh, they became essential in encampments to help keep, you know, food cooking, stuff being laundered and clean, nursing, uh, companionship, and just being around your your loved one at the time of, like, most stress, which ha- that has a long history with a lot of maybe more privileged positions, like a general could bring his wife and family, but maybe not infantrymen. But at this time, since there was, you know, very rapscallion, or not rap, what am I trying to say? Um, very like, uh, ragtag, like, uh, ragtag. Yeah, that's the word. Very ragtag soldiers, you know, just now getting into things that the women were involved in a way that maybe didn't happen later. Um, so she goes with him, Margaret goes with him. She, uh, they would also like carry water to the soldiers right on the front line in order to like help with wound care. Or I found out that you had to like cool the cannons off between like firings, I think, because they would get overheated and crazy or like, I, I'll do a deep dive on revolutionary cannon fire, but I, <laughs> you know, things happen. Um, so she's, she's there. She's with John. They're sent to New York into upper Manhattan where the British were trying to attack and capture Fort Washington, which is in, like, Washington Heights area, if you're following along on a map. And uh, they were sent... Their particular company had a bunch of cannons, so they were sent to hold off the attack by the British with uh, their gunfire. Um, At the time, the British are supplemented with a lot of Hessian soldiers, which I think is a fancy word for German mercenary people, right? Like the British get them to go in and fight so they don't actually lose British people. Yeah. It's a lot of sketchy stuff. So there's a lot of like Hessian references in this. Um, They're up on a hill. John's uh, helping. There's two guys on this cannon. John's like helping load while the other guy is like firing and aiming, right? So 
Um, the gunner is the guy, like, he's killed. So John's like, oh, crap. Okay, great. So he goes and he's trying to do it. And Margaret helps load and steps in because she's watched him do this a million times. And at some point, a musket hits John and he dies instantly. Like, boom, dead. And she's like, crap, this cannon. Oh, my husband. And she begins to load, aim, and fire it herself. Because why not do the work of two dudes? And uh, in the middle of gunfire. And she's apparently so good that the Hessian cannons are all like, oh my god, we gotta take out that cannon because it's killing so many people. So they all start aiming at her and firing at her specific position. And she continues to fire under extreme circumstance. Untrained, by the way. And uh, she eventually is wounded by a grape shot, which is a bunch of small iron balls that are fired together from a cannon. She gets taken yeah. out by a cannon, which I can't even... Ugh. Anyway, it hits her in the left arm, and it, like, nearly takes her arm off. And she gets kind of, like, shrapnel in, like, her chest and jaw. And she's taken from the battlefield at that point as wounded, and she's given medical care. Um, fortunately, Fort Washington is captured, but she is... Uh, uh, all the soldiers are captured. All the wounded are um, removed to Fort Lee, by the British, they're, they say they're paroled. I mean, I think that means they just didn't take all the wounded ones. They sent them to go be cared for. Um, so she has her arm nearly off, ball, like iron balls in her face and chest. And she has to go across a river into a wagon and bounced all the way to Philadelphia to actually get to a hospital. Oh, boy. So per usual, based on what you've heard about her so far, she survives. <laughs> Um, she couldn't ever use her left arm again for the rest of her life, but she does manage to survive. Um, the government hears about this, and in 79, she receives financial aid in the form of $30, which I should look up what that is today, but a decent, like, little chunk of change. And, um, they pass along her case to, to at the time it was, like, Pennsylvania, and then Congress actually got her case to their, um, desk and in they gave her also a, a new set of clothes to uh, replace the ones that she had lost in battle because you would have to wear your own things because we don't have a uniform yet and uh, the equip or the equivalent in cash and then she gets a half the monthly pay due to a soldier in the Continental Army at the time so they start paying her as if she were a soldier but not a full soldier, just like half one, because you're a woman, so mm -hmm. you can't so get. Like Why would you need person. all the money? Your husband's dead, and you can't use your arm, so we'll give you half the pay. But you know, it's something. I'm not gonna fault him. They were dealing with some screwed up logic at the time. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> um. So she technically is the first woman paid for a military position in the United States of America. Uh, she's included in military roles of soldiers until the end of the war and is discharged, officially discharged in 1783. So she, she has all that kind of prestige of, I mean, like now you would say prestige at the time. It was probably like a really crap life because she lost the ability to work for herself. It was clear like she was a blue collar person at the time mm -hmm. and needed her arm to maybe survive and thrive. Um, but the, the little financial help she did receive, I know Frankie is whining because of the injustice done to her. Um, Thank you, Frankie. I feel you. I feel like you have a lot of opinions about this episode. 
so let me let me just let me finish and then we'll deal with you. Um, I know I love you. Hold, please. Come on. Come on. No, you just want to whine when I talk. Great. Okay. Uh, so where was I? She's on military rolls. She's officially discharged. Uh, she ends up going to the invalid regiment at West Point and tends to the wounded. She marries another war veteran, but he unfortunately passed away. Um, once she's discharged, she is awarded a pension for the rest of her life. So she's also the first woman to be a pensioned soldier. Um, so, you know, take care of our veterans, right? You know, mm -hmm. that, that was the theme I was going with this week. Um, she kind of passes into obscurity. She dies in 1800, which is only like, she's like 48. I don't think she had a very good quality of life towards the end of her life, both because she couldn't work. Even though she was provided financial assistance, there was an element of like, couldn't work. Probably had some PTSD, I'm guessing, you know. her Both her husbands had died. She's, yeah. So not, she passes away. Um, then we have the DAR come in again. And they're like, oh, this renewed interest in her in 1926. They track down her story. They um, track down her records. And they're like, oh, we think we found her. Let's give her the due of a soldier. So they take her remains. I'm sorry, I should state. They take what they thought were her remains, because it's 1926. And they um, inter her with full military honors at West Point. Big deal. Pretty great. Yeah. Maybe not actually her body. So they did a DNA test in the 90s, and they're like, this was a dude, so probably not her. Oh, no. Um, but, you know, they meant, well, it's the DAR, again, coming in. And uh, they did erect a really beautiful uh, monument to her at the West Point graveyard, um, along with, like, what she was famous for and all that stuff. So you can meet her. Uh, you can go pay your respects to her in the West Point Cemetery. And there's also Corbin Drive in New York City Fort Tryon Park. So her legacy lives on in those ways. Um, she is cited as one of these, like, revolutionary women on the battlefield of which there are more. So we will have to dive into them a little bit more. There's a couple more I found that I didn't have time to add on to this situation. And that's where we are. We're at 30 minutes. Booyah. Nailed it. Do you need to go turn your bread? I do. But before I turn my bread, I, I want to ask cause I like can't not. So like this sounds very similar to the like Molly pitcher story that like all of the elementary school kids get. Is there any sort of tie between her story and the, this like idealized woman who like, hops onto the cannon when her husband gets shot and is like named Molly Pitcher. Yeah. I mean, Molly Pitcher was on my list to talk about too later on, but yes, it's very similar. Um, Molly Pitcher is actually like a nickname for a lot of women, but it goes to a very specific circumstance um, with one lady that we should talk about at a later date. But yes, it's the, I will say the one like picture of, um, Corbin, Margaret Corbin, is, like, such a uh, propaganda machine because she's wearing, like, the Dolly Madison, like, poofy hat, you know, bonnet thing. And then all of her garments, she's got, like, a red and white striped skirt and an apron. And, like, she looks like a costume of Betsy Ross, if you will. <laughs> or, like, pioneer uh, early American woman. Like, it looks like it's from Party City. So, <laughs> there's, yeah. But there's a lot of stories of 
women on the battlefield in the revolution, their husband is taken out by cannon fire, and then they're they're there on pictures, like, stoking the cannon and getting prepared for battle. And there's a whole lot of stuff with, like, them also being identified as, like, a Lady Liberty mm-hmm. analog. Do you know what I mean? In terms totally. of, like, big portraits and stuff. Yeah, but we'll have to talk about Molly Pitcher at another... Yeah. Maybe a July 4th episode or something. Oh, that sounds great. Already planning ahead. Yeah. Um, So I also did like a solid 18th century lady this week. Um, Does not lose an arm, but ends up losing her head. Um, She is a French political activist um feminist writes some of the like earliest and most forceful um sort of french pieces about women's equality and for all that she gets beheaded so let's just jump right into what is going to be a really like positive upbeat uplifting story for the week we're gonna find that silver lining michael we're gonna find it there's like little bits here and there um but just knowing that, like, that's where we're headed. Like, a nice little, like, mm. guillotine end to this. Um, you want us to, like, limit our expectations. Rather than, like, build to a beautiful ending where it's not beautiful at all. <laughs> it's opposite of. Yeah. Um, all right. But so the her name is, um, and I'm going to apologize in advance. There's a lot of French in this, and I'm going to butcher all of it. Um, but her, the name that she's known by... Um, is Olympe de Gouges, um, but she is born Marie Gouze in uh, May of 1748 in a small town in southern France. Um, her mom, Anne, is married to a butcher, Pierre, so like about as French as you can get. Uh, but most uh, people seem to think that her biological father um, is a marquis named Jean-Jacques Lefranc, um, who's sort of like a local nobleman that it seems like her mom was having like a pretty long-term affair with. Um, Ooh, solid. So French. Very French. Um, where <coughs> I've heard of Marquis before, but I don't know where they fall in terms of like nobility. Is there... What would you? What would you? Where would you put them? I, they on the they feel like solidly like mid to low tier. Like definitely like not chilling with the king all the time. Um, but yeah. also I don't think they're not like your like local like fancy guy down the street. I think they're like somewhere in the middle. But I have to be honest. Like yeah. French nobility right. is one of those things that I'm just like not up on. Yeah, um, okay. I might Google some stuff. You keep going. Okay. Um, but so Lefranc is a playwright um, and is pretty educated and so has like a, feels a bit of like an obligation to his daughter who he won't actually acknowledge as his daughter, but like pays for her to get a little bit of an education. But then at age nine, he marries a widow, moves to Paris and doesn't ever talk to her again. And this experience is sort of the first in a long line of experiences that leaves Marie really embittered towards marriage generally, um, and specifically like marriages in her life. Um, And so that's just like a little nugget that's gonna end up becoming like a really important part of her like 
overall feminist agenda later in life. Um, and as she's growing up, it's really clear that even though she's not getting a lot of an education, she's really bright, really intelligent. Um, but because of her family situation and where she falls in the social classes of the time, she doesn't really get much more of a formal education. So she's actually basically illiterate until her late teens and doesn't learn to speak French until around the same time, um, which I thought was like really interesting. She grows up in France. How does she not know French? Um, but apparently in southern France at the time, most people speak Occitan, which is a dialect closer to Catalan than to modern French. And so she's like part of a linguistic minority in addition to coming from like sort of a small southern town. So all of this is to say that like she is not the kind of person who like would be expected to have any sort of impact in the French world at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so she's sort of living what could be considered like a very typical working class French life in the 1750s, 1760s. Um, gonna do one of our favorite things young wedding um when her uh, mother's husband dies um she gets married off at age 16 or 17 the sources vary a little bit um to someone who is described as a caterer which you know definitely probably it's not what i think it is Mm -hmm. um it's oh he's such got such a nice bow tie look at him (laughs) um but it seems like he's basically like a cook um And unsurprisingly, the marriage is like an extremely painful, traumatic experience for Marie. Um, The way she later writes about it is, quote, I was sacrificed for no reason that could make up for the repugnance I felt for this man. Um, Oh, so like strong words, burn, not a fan, (laughs) definitely not a fan. Um, They have one kid um, whose name I was not able to find. I bet that was just. Made with love. Great. Mm-hmm. Oof. Poor kid. Um, but luckily Great. for her, her husband dies just a year after they're married. Um, and divorce at this wow, time is illegal. Wow, she still felt that way. Mm-hmm. She still felt that way, Later. like, after he's dead. Like, this is wow. long after he's died. She's like, yeah, no, still was not a fan. Um, and divorce being Did illegal in France at this point, like, this is her only way out. Like, she's stuck mm-hmm. with him until he dies. And luckily he dies pretty quickly. Um, and I mean, I'm pretty sorry soon after, died, you know, but like, yeah, going. I know it's, it's the, it, for going. her, it's a good thing. Death is sad, but for her, it's a really good thing. Um, and pretty much immediately after his death, um, she moves to Paris so and she, changes her name to Olympe de Gouges, um, and starts like, so she's 17 with a baby, 17 with a baby and, and at a age 20 moves to a new city where she doesn't really speak the language with a kid rebrands herself totally changes her life sweet yeah making big moves um and she quickly sort of joins the like intellectual artist classes of the city um and starts engaging with a lot of the like intellectual debates going on at the time um and at the same time she vows she's never going to marry anyone ever again um and this is from what's her like one of her most famous quotes comes she calls marriage the tomb of trust and love and vows never to do it again um so like definitely strong feelings strong negative feelings about marriage um yeah, she's done. and so as she's in this like intellectual world she's hanging out with people like rousseau reading a lot of 
big treatises about natural reason and the equality of people. And she's like, this really speaks to me. But also when you guys talk about equality, what you really mean is equality between dudes. And I really want to like expand that, like to this radical notion that like women are also people, therefore women should also have equality, which like groundbreaking. I know. Um, Yeah. No, it was though. I was reading so much about like the 18th century woman and how they were, even in, into the 19th century, where it's just, like, children and women were on the same level in terms of, like, mental ability. Yeah. It's like, oh, bless their heart. You know, they mean so well, but they just can't handle these kind of strenuous, manly thoughts that we have. Exactly. And that's really the, 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 like, enlightenment thing that, like, pisses me off. Of all of the many enlightenment things that piss me off is, is at this point that you sort of get this really strong, developed notion that, like, women are basically children who have no legal rights Mm -hmm. and until they marry they're like subjugated to their father and once they've married they're subjugated to their husband and like have no rights outside of that but at the same time it's this it's this weird paradox um that um degouge points out a lot which is like okay so i'm not enough of a person to have my own rights but i'm enough of a person to be held accountable for crimes and executed for them um and that's something that like she really hammers home like time and time and again Oh, the irony. Like, such deep irony. And the um, the quote she has about it is really sort of directly to the point. Um, and she says, women are entitled to mount the scaffold. They must also be entitled to mount the rostrum. And by that, she means, like, if I'm enough of a person to be executed for crime, I should be enough of a person to be able to participate in politics. Um, and that is, like, sort of her, like, quintessential theme time and time again. She's like... If you're going to execute me for things, if you're going to treat me like a person in that regard, you have to treat me like a person in every other regard. You can't have it both ways. That just doesn't make sense. Um, And so as she's like getting really into these issues, she realizes that she like has a really strong voice and starts writing and starts publishing. Um, She becomes a playwright, which like is my favorite thing. Like back in the day, if you were going to be a radical social activist, what did you do? You wrote plays. Um, I kind of like think that's awesome. Um, and yeah. so her first big public play um, is, it's called Zamor and Mizra, um, but it's also known as The Slavery of the Negroes. Um, and it's about uh, slavery and colonialism in the French colonies, specifically in the Caribbean. Um, and it is like a fiery condemnation of like all of the French practices in their colonies. Um, calls for like the abolition of slavery, the total equality of people regardless of their skin color. Um, and kind of surprisingly, one of the major theaters in Paris agrees to produce it. But they want her to, like, tone it down a little bit. They're like, this is cool. We think this is interesting. But can you cut a little bit down on the whole, like, racial equality thing? And can you be, like, a little less aggressive in your condemnation of, like, the royal government's policies? And she is not unexpectedly not a huge fan of all of this. Um, and in something that like I, what year, what year sorry, this is like 1785, 1786. So like pre, so there's a lot of people not a fan of royal people though at this time. Mm-hmm. She's not like, alone. She is not alone. And this is like just in those like couple of years right before the revolution kicks off where like there's all of these ideas swirling, all of this dissatisfaction swirling, but the like official government policy is still like, no, we're, we're pro king. We're still big fans of the monarchy. 
Um, and so well, and since and all runs the theaters, the theater is run and it's like a state run theater. Um, pretty much all of the big theaters in yeah. Paris at this time are basically state institutions. Subsidized. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and so the play premieres actually in 1789, the same year that the revolution kicks off. Um, but the version that gets produced is ultimately like a little bit more toned down kind of to the, um, sort of ire of de Gouge. And she has like this really great piece that she writes sort of like lambasting the theater for making her make all of these changes, which felt like so closely tied to like everything I've ever heard modern playwrights complain about like other people trying to make changes to their work. Um, and it feels yeah. like something that like, no, you have my voice. You know exactly how I was going to write that for sure. Yeah. Exactly. And the way she yeah. frames it's sort of like it. Sort like when you see, you, Yeah. Um, sort of like when you see a movie and you're like, I can tell a producer like really had some notes on this. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Feel it. Feel the heavy hand. Um, and then um, what she ultimately ends up saying about it is that like, I bore in silence this outrageous cruelty. What was I doing in this hellhole? I said to myself, fighting back tears that were about to flow. Like that, that could come out of like any contemporary playwright's mouth. Yeah. What a poet. All right. Yeah. Um, so they rewrite her work. They rewrite her work. They put it on, um, but it's still too controversial. And after just three performances, it gets closed because all of the sort of pro-slavery interests in the capital come and ha they like basically pay people to like show up and boo the play the whole time. Um, so Charming. you know, paid protesters are actually a thing occasionally, um, mm -hmm. just often not for the liberals. Um, but by the time uh, the play premieres and then quickly closes, she has a lot more pressing concerns going on because um, the French Revolution has sort of kicked off and she is immediately really engaged politically in what's happening in Paris. Um, so she's writing pamphlets and articles that are getting really widely published. She's becoming like a really recognizable name in the sort of literary political circles that are growing up as the like movement towards creating a national assembly and sort of trying to develop a bit more of like an accountable system of government comes along she is one of the major voices in the city writing and speaking on a lot of these issues um and in particular she's really concerned with taking care of the poor um the one of like the huge things that kicks off the french revolution is this like famine that's happening in the years leading up to it and so she in effect argues for an income tax on rich people saying like they don't need to be holding on to all of these money especially like jewels, ostentatious clothing. And so she's like, we should tax that um, and makes a case mm. that like the state has a right to take away some of people's things in order to pay for taking care of the poor um, and actually gets a large group of French noble women to quote unquote donate their jewels and their clothing to the national treasury to like help pay for some of these things. And by donate, I think we mean, like, go? give us your jewels or we're going to take them from you. But mm. still, like, a bit of a push towards, like, a more equitable distribution of wealth. Um, That's radical. Isn't it, though? Something tells me that doesn't go well. I just don't think, um, yeah, yeah. If, if history is any indication, rich people don't like to give up their stuff mm -mm. willy-nilly. Not particularly. Yeah. Uh, Even when, and, you know, babies are starving. Uh, anywho. But I need my gold. Like, I can't give up my gold. I know. I need my diamond necklace. I I paid for it. 
Yeah. Great. Cool. Uh, awesome. So, like, so she gets some necklaces donated. Get some necklaces donated. Um, but her really big target is she wants to get divorce legalized. Um, she's obviously had some really bad experiences with really bad marriages and thinks that like it's one of the biggest obstacles to women's equality is like they don't really have any power in marriage but are like expected to get married and just be subservient to their husbands yeah um and so in best playwright style writes a full-length play focused on the issue um publishes a lot of pamphlets and is ultimately successful and in 1792 france legalizes divorce which at that time is like a really radical social change to be making especially on like a national level so let's talk about plays as politics so at the time is is i'm i'm thinking of french theater as like is it a place for the classes to mingle or is it a very elite grouping or is it the fact that you produce a play so then a lower class establishment can put it on for lower class people that maybe wouldn't be able to go to the fancy theater yeah or is it kind of all of the above you i think? think it's probably all of the above i mean my sense of it is that like kind of in a similar way to today like there's sort of the stratified like you've got the people who are like in the cheap seats you've got the people in the fancy boxes mm-hmm. but they're all sort of seeing the same work um and that also f- when you have like a really largely illiterate population if you want to talk about ideas with yeah. them you have to do right. it orally right. and so like plays are a really effective yeah. tool for doing that mm-hmm. um but I, because I always think of like Shakespeare's politics is the fact that they would always talk about like you could get in for really really cheap on the lower level, whereas like the boxy that was always like talked about. I don't know if French theater is quite the same at this time because it's also way later. Um, but I do think there's probably like some lower end, you know, in a adjacent to a tavern kind of playhouses where you could see the same play that the king is seeing at the like state run theater Mm -hmm. and the ideas are the same if like the audience is not do you know what i mean yeah and i think that that is my sense of Mm. sort of what the like theatrical scene in the city is looking like at this point um is that it is sort of a it's not just a an art form for the super wealthy but it is a, a thing that especially once the revolution gets kicked off is designed to be a little bit more accessible to the people maybe not like the working classes but definitely like the middle class um the sort of like educated but not super wealthy group would definitely have been exposed to this kind of stuff um Mm -hmm. but i think it also is tied into sort of the like larger print culture of like publishing pamphlets like every other day and like these published letters and debates happening back and forth where like those would get handed out on the streets or people would sort of read them aloud in addition to reading them in their homes and so there's much more of like an orality to a lot of this writing that I think we today were like, oh yeah, they were writing it so you would read it. And that's not necessarily the case. Often it would be read to you or sort of like proclaimed aloud in more public spaces like taverns or coffee shops or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. All right. And so in addition to like advocating for divorce and like advocating against slavery, um, she's also writing to get OBGYN wards in state hospitals because um, the infant mortality rate is about 25% at this point. So like one in four chance that like, if you have a baby, it's going to die. The maternal mortality rate also really high. And she's like, we should fix that. Um, She advocates for national workshops, which is this sort of like very French idea um, that the state should provide these places where people can go to work and get vocational training. 
Um, she's an advocate for hostels so that people who are experiencing homelessness have a place to sleep in the winter. Um, and then she's a really so vocal she's member. she's a big old socialist. Bas- I mean, <laughs> basically. She's a big old socialist where she's like, hey, how about we use this be kind to our fellow man in a structured way, mm-hmm. which is how I understand socialism. I'm ready to be educated because I don't know that much about it, but um and should and like so it, putting that goodwill in practice yeah ex- well that exactly no no that's exactly it it's this idea that like there are all of these social problems that are problems and we should look to fix them on the same structural level that they exist um and what's super interesting mm-hmm. about her is um michael you're so smart can we just talk about it <laughs> you're just I'm so smart a hundred percent and i can't stand it I was just about to out myself. So a lot of my understanding of the French Revolution and particularly this divide between like the social questions of the revolution and the political questions of the revolution come from the Revolutions yeah. podcast, which I like cannot recommend highly enough. Like um, Duncan Hunter, who's the guy who does that, does such a good job of like diving really deeply into these kind of questions and teasing apart like why do you have these like political radicals who are also socially super conservative? Um, and for anyone who's interested in the French Revolution, I think there's like... 80 something episodes if you really want to like get into the weeds of all of this stuff (laughs) um but then that's what i find really interesting about her is that like on the social questions she's like incredibly radical but on the political questions she's actually much more conservative than a lot of the revolutionaries are so rather than calling for the total abolition of the monarchy she is more interested in forming a constitutional monarchy similar to the system in britain at the time that has sort of a representative body but the king is also still involved in the process um and she actually sort of argues that like we should maybe ask the people what they want um and so there's this push um in the sort of early 1790s to do a plebiscite to basically let france vote on like do you want a republic do you want a monarchy do you want a constitutional monarchy um and obviously like the the revolutionaries in paris are not a huge fan of that because they're like "Mm, there's all of these like conservative people in the countryside who like probably don't want a republic we can't let them have a say in it because yeah. we want a republic. Um, yeah. And so she's yeah. going to get in big trouble for that a little bit down the line. Um, but before she gets in trouble for that, she's going to write her like her magnum opus, the thing that like she is, if she's remembered at all, is remembered for. Um, it's the Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen. Um, I know this. I, yeah okay i know where we're at yeah yeah um, i've read about this uh and i had i had not encountered it before looking her up for this episode but i was like mm, this feels like i i like where she's going with this um and in particular it's obviously like a direct challenge to the declaration of the rights of man um but mm-hmm. it's in addition to being that it's also sort of a really forceful argument against this idea of universality that the enlightenment and the french revolution are pushing that like we're all for universal rights and universal freedom and all of these things but what they really mean by universal is like white men like that is the extent to which most of them are able white land holding white men Mm -hmm. you gotta own property right i mean that's rich white exactly and the, the radical notion of the french revolution is that like maybe you don't need as much property or maybe if we're going to be really radical you don't need property at all but you still have to be a white man and so she yeah. it basically like point by point goes through the French constitution and is like, mm, yeah, you say everyone here, but what you mean is white men. And you say everything, everyone here, but what you mean is white men. And really goes through on a really deep level and sort of does a point by point rebuttal of the like 
grand sweeping language of these documents is like you're ignoring women you're also ignoring children which like is problematic um but you're really ignoring women um and so in writing this document lays out like a really forceful case for why it's important to include women you know half of the people in those like formal political structures of the country yeah um and the way she frames it which i think is great and hits it right on the nose um is the introduction she writes given that ignorance disregard or the disdain of the rights of women are the only causes of public misfortune and the corruption of governments we have decided to make known in a solemn declaration the national inalienable and sacred rights of women like cool so like she gets it she knows where we're coming from Mm. she like Mm -hmm. lays it out really really clearly um and then the from my end the like coolest thing is in addition to like all of these political questions that the document addresses at the end she's like also by the way here's an example of like what a not sexist marriage agreement would look like um calling it like a social contract but contract between man and woman which basically lays out her view of like what an actual equal relationship that is kind of equivalent to marriage but that is not marriage would look like and she's like just so we can all remember marriage sucks never really gonna let that drop mm-hmm. um as framed at this time as framed yeah. at this time yeah obviously the like yeah. very patriarchal um male dominated view of marriage um yeah the transactional part of it exactly um do want to be clear like i'm not condemning all marriage she was condemning all marriage but coming from a very different context um yeah for sure and so this like sort of gets us up to the point where like she's gonna get in trouble for all of this um starting in 1793 the revolution is gonna take what's kind of called like a swing from the moderate revolution which are these like middle class philosophs who are like very interested in like constitutional monarchy and like some basic checks and balances on the king to like a very hardcore like radical republican very anti-monarchist very like leftist in some ways group um and kicks off everyone's favorite part of the revolution the terror um where from 1793 to 1794 about 17,000 people are going to get executed most of them guillotined for being enemies of the revolution um yeah yeah so like great great time to to be alive and especially for her great time to be this kind of like moderate constitutional monarchist um and so that on top of the fact that like she's making these forceful arguments for women's rights is gonna get her in trouble with the people running the terror and very specifically with Maximilien Robespierre, who's the head of the Committee of Public Safety, which is the group that's sort of orchestrating all of these executions. Um, And she very directly, like, calls him out and is like, hey, you're a dictator. That's not what we're doing here. And he's like, no, I'm not a dictator. Um, And then summarily throws her in jail. I'm just killing everybody that disagrees with me. You know, normal guy stuff. Like like democracies are supposed to work, right? Yeah. Um, If you can't take criticism, maybe don't be in charge. That's how I feel. Yeah. Um, he doesn't deal well with criticism, and so he throws her in jail in July. Um, she's held in Ugh. prison uh, through November. Um, she manages to smuggle some writings out of prison and is, like, advocating for her release. Um, but when she goes to trial in November, she gets one day of hearings. She's forced to represent herself. 
and at the end of that day, she is sentenced to death. Um, so on the next day, uh, November 3rd, 1793, she's taken out of the prison uh, to the Place de Révolution, where she is beheaded. Um, all of her writings and her home is burned, um, and there's sort of this concerted effort by the revolutionary authorities to discredit her. Um, one of them writing just like two weeks on after. On the basis of like, she, she wants a constitutional monarchy? On that well, this is what I find really interesting is like most of what they write doesn't talk at all about her political leanings. It's pretty much like she's a woman, she stepped out of line, and she got what was coming to her. Um, one of them writes, she abandoned the cares of her household to get involved in politics and commit crimes. She died on the guillotine for having forgotten the virtues that suit her sex. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Alright. Um, so it's this... It's, That's just... I'm so mad. Right? I'm so irrationally mad. It's no, I'm not irrationally so, mad. I'm genuinely like, mad. Mm-hmm. It, it's like so doubly insulting. Like not only do they execute her, but after they do it, they deny that she is like in any way a political actor. She's like, no, no, no. It's all about her being a woman and all about her being a woman in the wrong kind of way and totally erases the fact that she is this like major, fairly important political figure in the city at the time. Just like, poof, wiped off yeah. the map. Um and it actually, like, the, to make it add more insult to injury, um, basically all of that gets written into the history. Like, when she appears at all, she's sort of this, like, strumpet, like, very sexually loose, immoral woman who's, like, Ugh. running around sleeping with everyone and isn't actually, like, doing any, like, real work. Um, and it's not until the 1980s um, when a French historian goes to write a biography about her and has to, like, wade through all of that crap that... Um, we start getting this like more nuanced more realistic picture of her as like a woman like deeply engaged in politics and in writing and advocating who needed a job she just wanted a job like it's sometimes okay i just i can't go on a tirade about motherhood and working women but like it's just it's just those brief moments in history when like if they had just had a job it would it would have been fine but the radical notion that you step outside your house and participate in this world you're living in is like so horrible to encounter as like a version of a woman that we had to like kill her and burn all her stuff. And, you know, oh my God, it's just, it's insane. It's so fragile. It's just so fragile as a concept that it it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay great well you know keep going all right great. i mean that's that and that's the thing like that's basically where the, where this ends it's like she is sort of a little bit more well known more people are familiar with the declaration yeah. of the rights of women there's a square named after her in paris but in a lot of ways her legacy is still sort of crushed under the weight of all of the misogyny that looked to like sweep it away um yeah and so and her and like so many other women are so deeply involved in the French Revolution in so many ways. And basically, they all sort of get, like, swept under the rug by the men who are trying their best to, like, make sure no one ever notices that, like, women were doing things. Um, which is why, like, still so many histories of the French Revolution, like, they'll mention, like, women marching to Versailles to, like, bring the king back to the city. And that's pretty much it. But, like, women were deeply involved on, like, every single level of the French Revolution. But for the most part, they're yeah, just like... That's most revolutions. No, don't look over there. I feel like there's a tendency of, you know, we need you, we need you, we need you. Okay, we threw off the oppressor, so now that we can be the oppressed. You know what I mean? Or, or mm-hmm. the oppressed. You know, we threw off the person in charge, and now we're in charge, and now you 
we need someone to be in charge of. So that's you guys. And, you know, it goes for other minorities that participated in revolutions. Like, you know, the scores of regiments that were made up of African-Americans in the revolution. Like we needed you on the battlefield and now you can go on back to poverty and no pensions and no memorials to your bravery. But thank you for your help. We got what we wanted. You may go now. And it's like, okay, great. Like, you know, and to dismiss the contributions that they maybe participated in, like, okay, great. Uh, What am I trying to say? Like, all of the women that were just pouring buckets of water on these cannons, they're just as essential as the person shooting the cannon. Like, and and then they just get, they just write them out of history. They're just not as important as, like, the one that actually dealt the killing blow. But any good participant knows, like, Every general is not worth his salt without the people that support him, right? Yep. And so all of these women that participated on, like, the front lines of these historic moments, it's just so frustrating. <laughs> you don't see them highlighted at all, except for these brief little pockets. Like, she wrote a Declaration of Independence for women, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, and we just don't know about it. I think yeah. the suffragettes brought her out and about in, like, the 20th century. Is that correct? Um, we have to do a thing about suffragettes. I think I actually don't. I don't know about her relationship with suffragettes. I know there. It's this one historian in the eighties um, who sort of stumbles upon her. And is like, wow, like she is basically like a proto-feminist before feminism is a thing, um, and then starts like writing her and like mm-hmm. excavating her particular thing. Um, but the thing I love about her is that she's like actually an intersectional feminist again before that's the like cool thing to do. Like, there's this whole legacy of like nineteenth-century feminism that is like really white and incredibly racist at least in the u.s um but here's this french woman who's like yeah so i'm going to spend my time like advocating for the end of slavery and for the rights of like africans in the french colonies just as much as i'm going to be advocating for like the rights of women here in france um and it's like so far ahead of like the broader social movements at that time to like be willing to do that just as forcefully And that's just such a a typical thing of people in power is like the way you stay in power is you divide the people that are trying to oppose you into whatever way that you can box them and then they can fight each other and then they're not coming for you. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. It's like these people and these people, oh, they want to take your this and they want to take your that. And oh, you guys, aren't you mad at the women because they want to get out of the house and not raise your kids? Isn't that terrible? And then all of a sudden there's an inner conflict among the people that should actually take a big old look at who's actually in charge and maybe enact some real change but it's amazing how much just this is why you need to learn history people because it just repeats and repeats until you have a big change do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean it it incrementally gets better I'm not going to deny that but it does eerily repeat itself Right? Even and in it, our two stories, like our our revolutions butt up against each other, and mm-hmm. they didn't even have the for, like the hindsight of ten years to look back and be like, oh, we should maybe not do what they did, or we should do this differently. You know, it's yeah. just so quickly forgotten because there's pressing matters of the time. Mm-hmm. But the pressing Ooh. matters never seem to be like, hey, maybe like these women who did all of these things for us, like, and made it possible for us to you know be a country or like not be a monarchy anymore. Maybe some of the yeah. pressing matters would be like taking care of their needs too yeah and there's always um there's always like reasons for not right now it's just Mm -hmm. too soon or it's like it's just gonna be too hard 
to do it this way until you have like some crazy person <laughs> has to get in there and be like, I don't care what it does. Let's flip it. And then they actually like, that's the kind of cleaning of the chalkboard moment that happens to actually give people. Yeah. Something that should have happened way longer ago, but yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think it's we, we really need to like you know? do a, an episode just about like how the 19th century is like in a lot of ways, this like really shitty, regressive time when it comes to like rights for women and that like we actually might just have been in a better place if like we jumped right from like revolutionary women's positions to like yeah. like early 20th century and just like ignored most of the like repressive stuff that was happening in the yeah. 1800s but honestly like without without the retrograde like you don't motivate people to then seek further change like you have to almost backslide in order to gain enough momentum again to get that next step done and then you a pendulum man like you have to mm-hmm. just go back and be in a crappy time in order to have a good time you can't know the good without the bad on a phil- if we're gonna get philosophical michael yeah yes it would be great if we could just skip the victorian era as like a time of women's advancement because it was horrible except for queen victoria but she's insane so um yeah i don't know if we would have the suffragette movement if we didn't have the victorian era you know what i mean yeah no i completely agree yeah but great i think that's like yeah i think still sucked but like maybe it's getting better it seems like a great place to leave this week's episode there you go good idea okay people are revolution michael indeed (laughs) we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of missing history If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.